0: Good afternoon, everybody. Really good to see such a crowd. Um, For a program that's brand new, we're going to open it up. Uh, My name is Martijn Tipas, I'm the head of programming department of the festival. Uh, I'm really honored and proud to all have you here. Um, Sometimes our stop-doing list needs to be bigger than our to-do list. Slow down and enjoy life. It's not only the scenery you miss by going too fast, you also miss the sense of where you are, and where you're going, and why. Stand still and you go backwards, the saying goes. We're constantly urged to make our lives as productive as possible. Many words related to standing still have negative connotations. Stagnation, impasse, delay the rest of development. Anything to do with movement and action can count on a much warmer reception. If a themed program, The Quiet Eye, will investigate slow documentary, presenting nine films that take as their starting point the experience of time in real life. It's made up of recent and older films and spools from today, 24th, to next Sunday here in the Papagrand. The film exudes a remarkable calm and reflective quality. These films don't accelerate because they're not in a hurry. We have special introductions before the films, discussions, performances, tea ceremonies, and some other stuff that I can't reveal. You'll find out if you come come in three days. Some quotes from our catalogue. To watch the slow documentaries in the Quiet Eye program is to experience the unhurried reality of time. An opportunity to reappraise the value of standing still and appreciate the inconspicuous. Watching these documentaries means experiencing time as it really occurs, unhurried and more often cyclical than progressive. Moments of boredom are part of the experience, but it's precisely at these times that the mind can open to unexpected and undirected thoughts, which don't necessarily arrive at a conclusion. Many documentaries rely, like the news media, on contrast, conflict, and the extraordinary. But these films make space for inconspicuous events, which finally claim their moment in the spotlight. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the films that are on screen, so we can have first slide. Invention by Mark Lewis. Who's here? Where are you, Mark? Maybe he's still having coffee at the bar, really slowly. I think he is. <laughs> is, an un, um, is an unhurried composed love letter to Toronto, Paris, and Sao Paulo. I'm still waiting put a slide. Will it work? Will it wait? <coughs> Very slow. <laughs> does have to be perfect? I'll continue. In Shepard's journey into the third millennium by the uh, Swiss filmmaker Eric Lamia, Shepard's show that patient attention and dedication, the very source of the slow movement, also requires intense effort. Taimagura's grandma is a touching glimpse into the most life of an elderly couple living high in the mountains of northern Japan. man. It's filmed over the course of 15 years. In two years at sea, The next Friday evening. Shades of light and darkness are more important than words and deeds. A place called Lloyd is a quiet portrait of a bankrupt airline and its employees who faithfully continue to turn up for work. Working. A place called Lloyd is a quiet portrait of a bankrupt. That's how I just did that. In the hypnotically filmed Dead Hand, a cargo ship reveals itself to be a futuristic machine. Which seems to devour its crew. Alexa in the Spring, and the director is present also here, uh, is the loving ode to a vanishing agrarian way of life and to people who have stayed true to their roots, the morale being you should cultivate your own garden. Light Year, um, welcome Miguel, um, is a calm observation of daily life in the director's garden in Fosterborne, Sweden. Is edited in its natural rhythm, without commentary. Through Christensen's sharp eyes and ears, we keep discovering new things in a garden, teeming with life. This is a world that surrounds us every day, that we actually know very little of it. Watching it intensifies our gaze, and it's relaxing at the same time. An event is as big as you make it. And, by the way, it will be uh, accompanied with live music, organized by... uh, Sound South to the North maps the ever-changing state of a territory redesigned by engineers, where cement reaches beyond the grasslands, rivers leave their beds, deserts become forests, and where voices gradually grow stronger. Yannis Kriakides and Andy Moore composed the original soundtrack of this film, which was previously called Suite au Nord de Passés and premiered in El-Gamma a few years ago. And the new cut, the shorter cut, will be accompanied by a live soundtrack by the two musicians, also produced by Sina And now, our welcome, Karl Honoré, our very special guest. Uh, he's an award-winning writer, broadcaster and test speaker, and the globe ambassador of the slow movement, and a spokesman of slowness, and he will join us for three days. Um, Let's give him a big hand. I'll must say some more, but alright. Already give him a big hand. I'm going to finish. I'm going to wrap up now. And um, thanks for all the filmmakers that are here, that advised us on the films. Thanks to my colleagues, especially to uh, Raul around. Chaiyai too, please give him a big hand as well. You. They'll they'll stick out from production also, and many other colleagues as well. Uh, and I already want to thank uh, Bas Beek and Christian Basarlia exactly, yeah, from Sina who will be here next Sunday. But I'll ask for an applause mm-hmm. next Sunday. Don't mm-hmm. worry. Thanks also to the steering uh, Zalavas who supported the program uh, and Happiness as our media meet partner. And for now, Carl, take it away, but slowly, as good things take time.
1: <laughs> Thank, you. Thank, you Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here in Amsterdam. It's a city that I have a lot of affection for, but it always makes me laugh a little bit when I come up against the image that you have as you know, Amsterdamers or Dutch people in general, outside the country. Because when I I lived in London, and so when I announced on social media and told my friends I was coming to Amsterdam to fly the flag of slow, to, to preach how good it is to slow down, maybe you can imagine what everybody said to me. They said, why are you going to Holland? Right? They're already very slow there. You know? This is a country of people who don't work long hours, who cycle everywhere, and who have lots of coffee shops Right in Amsterdam. And... The bottom line, for the London people especially, was that people in Holland do not understand the multitasking mania that is every moment of every day in a big city like London or New York. But I'm not really sure that that caricature or that image is very accurate. I saw something a little while ago in a restaurant outside Amsterdam, which made me realize that that image that people have of you is completely wrong. It was a normal evening and there were lots of Dutch people eating and laughing and drinking together, And at one moment I went to the bathroom and I saw a scene there that just stopped me in my tracks. There were four Dutch men all lined up at the urinal. We know what that is, yeah, but it's not a very beautiful image, I know, but they're all they're all lined up there, they're doing what you do at the urinal. But all of them are using their mobile phones at the same time, right? So it's this Dutch chorus line of multitasking. And the worst part, the worst part, the worst part, the worst part is that one of the guys is using his phone with two hands. I was saying <laughs> let's, let's just put that on one side. But, but you know, seeing those Dutch guys distracted by their phones reminded me of a news story that hit the headlines a little while ago in England. It was about a couple who were getting divorced. And they went to the court and the judge said, what went wrong? Why are you here? And the husband answered first. He said, well, your honor, you know, it's a long story. We married young and we grew apart over the years. But the moment I knew that this marriage was over, finished, dead in the water, it was one night when my wife and I were in bed together and we were making love. And I closed my eyes for just a few seconds. And when I opened them up again, I caught my wife reading email on her iPhone, right? (laughs) While we were getting it on. Now, there are obviously two conclusions that we can draw from a news story like that. The first is clearly that the husband in question, that guy needs to brush up on his bedroom technique, right? But the second conclusion is the more useful and the more apposite for us today, and that is that like that woman, glancing at her inbox while making love to her husband, we've all forgotten how to switch off, how to unplug. We've forgotten how to give ourselves over completely to another person or a moment. We've forgotten how to do one thing at a time. We've forgotten how to slow down. And it's not surprising, is it? Because this is the world that we live in now, London, Amsterdam, wherever you go, a world stuck in fast forward, A, a world obsessed with speed, with cramming more and more into less and less time. For many of us, even away from the workplace, every moment of the day now feels like a race against the clock. So, this is the world of speed reading, speed walking, speed dialing, speed networking, speed dating, and even things that are by their very nature slow, that are designed to shift us into a lower gear, we try to accelerate them as well. So, there's a gym near my house in London now which offers an evening course in speed yoga, right? And this is great. This is for time-starved professionals. They want to salute the sun, bend their bodies into the lotus position, but they want to do it in five minutes instead of an hour, and possibly while looking at their phones at the same time. (laughs) I thought speed yoga was the most absurd manifestation of this roadrunner culture, until a friend of mine in the United States got invited to a drive-through funeral, A drive-through funeral. I wish I were making this up, but I'm not. The church places the coffin at the entrance, the mourners arrive by car and they say farewell to a loved one through a pane of glass. <laughs> now, obviously, drive-through funerals, speed jokes, these are extreme examples of our speedaholic culture, and they're almost like a joke. They make us laugh, but they also steer us to a more serious point. And that is that nowadays many of us are so caught up in the headlong dash of daily life. We're so marinated in this culture of speed we also lose sight of the damage that all of this rushing, impatience, busyness, distraction, multitasking, stimulation is doing to every aspect of our lives. The harm it does to our health and diet, to our relationships and families and communities, to our ability to think and create and innovate in the workplace, and of course the harm it does to the environment. Many (coughs) of us now are actually racing through our lives instead of living them. And when we get stuck in fast-forward like that, it often takes a shock to the system, or a wake-up call. Something to make you realize you've forgotten how to put on the brakes, and that this is doing you real damage. And for many people nowadays, the wake-up call comes in the form of an illness. One day the body just says, no, no, I cannot take the pace anymore, and you have a burnout or a heart attack, or you just can't get out of bed one morning. Or maybe a relationship goes up in smoke, because you haven't had the time or the tranquility to listen to the other person, to be with them, to switch off your iPhone in bed. My wake-up call came when I started reading bedtime stories to my son. And back in those days, I just could not slow down. So I would go into his room at the end of the day, sit on the bed with one foot on the floor, and speed read Snow White. So I'm skipping lines, paragraphs. I became an expert in what I called. The multiple page turn technique? Any parent? Right. Well, we've all done it, right? We all know that it never works, right? Because these confounded children, they know the stories inside out. So my son would always catch me. He'd say, he'd say, Daddy, why are there only three dwarves in the story tonight? What happened to Grumpy? And this lamentable state of affairs went on for some time until I caught myself flirting with buying a book I'd heard about, a book called The One Minute Bedtime Story. Snow White, Hans Christian Andersen, Brothers Grimm, all those glorious children's tales boiled down into 60-second chunks. And I read about it in a newspaper and I thought, hallelujah, what a great idea, I need that book now from Amazon, drone delivery. But thankfully, I had a second reaction, which is very different. I thought, whoa, has it really come to this? Am I really in such a hurry that I'm prepared to fob off my little boy with a sound bite at the end of the day instead of a story? And for me, that was the moment of truth. I realized that I just lost my compass, I lost my way, I lost my my head, my mind. And so I set off around the world to investigate not only my own addiction to speed, but also to understand our global obsession with going fast. And I came back with good news. And that is that wherever you go in the world nowadays, more and more people are doing the unthinkable. They're slowing down in every walk of life. And they're discovering the contrary to what conventional wisdom tells us, which is if you slow down, you're boring, you're stupid, you're unproductive, you're unhappy, you're unhappy, you're, you're roadkill, that the opposite turns out to be true. That by slowing down judiciously at the right moments, people find that they eat better, make love better, raise their children better, think better, work better, they live better. And this rising tide of deceleration that you see around the world today has a name. People call it the slow movement. Now, i want to make it very clear up front that when we talk about slow with a capital S, we don't mean doing everything very, very, very slowly. That would be silly. That would be preposterous. It would be absurd. Uh, I'm not an extremist or a fundamentalist of slowness. I love speed, right? I'm, I'm a naturally fast person. You can tell from the way I talk. I live in London. I play ice hockey. I love speed, and we all know that faster is often better, but not always. Not always, and that's the key here. Because when you talk about the slow revolution and the slow movement, what you mean is doing things at the right speed. Knowing that, sure, there are times to be fast and juggling things and busy, but there are also times to slow, them, slow things down. And then there are also lots of other cadences, rhythms, speeds, and tempos in between. It's about changing gears. Slow, I think, in essence, is a state of mind. It's about being present, And in the moment, it's about doing things with quality rather than quantity. It's about doing things not as fast as possible, but as well as possible. And once you change that chip in your head, just put the slow chip in, you realize that it can revolutionize everything you do. So wherever you go now, people are taking the lens of slow and applying it to whatever field of human endeavor, slowing things down and asking themselves that question. How can I decelerate what I'm doing here, in this moment, in order to do it better and enjoy it more? I've not got a lot of time today, so I thought I'd, if you'll pardon a small act of hypocrisy, maybe an in inconsistency, i was going to take you on the fast tour of the slow movement, giving you a sense of what's happening out there, and also, towards the end, try and tie it into what's happening here with this quiet eye season, because this whole season of slow documentaries and contemplative cinema and so on is very much, it's not happening in a vacuum, it's embedded in a deep, tectonic cultural change that is happening all around us, and it's called SLOW with a capital S. So maybe let's start with uh, food, right? These days we eat badly, often because the virus of hurry has infected every link of the food chain, right? From the way we produce to the way we uh, cook and consume, and we've we've lost the art of eating well and eating with enjoyment, which is why there's a big push within the whole world of SLOW Uh, And the world of food to 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 decelerate to bring slow to the table. So I'm sure you've heard of the slow food movement, which started in Italy, but has spread across Europe to Netherlands and and beyond. And slow food is based on a very simple but sensible idea, which is that we get a lot better a better deal for the environment, a lot more pleasure, a lot more social connection, and cultural meaning from our food when what we eat is cultivated, cooked, and consumed more slowly at the right speed instead of as fast. Possible. And of course, slow food is just the tip of the iceberg. The renaissance of farmers markets and artisanal production of beer and bread and everything else you can imagine is part of that same thing. that People are yearning for food that's not fast, for food that's slow, food that's good, food that tastes of something and has a story behind it. Out of um, the slow food movement has grown something called slow cities. Again, it started in Italy, but it spread across Europe and beyond. There are now roughly 200 official slow cities. And what these cities do is that they reshape and rethink the urban landscape, uh, changing things in ways that encourage citizens to slow down, to smell the roses, to enjoy their lives instead of rushing through them. So they create more green space or put in public benches or have more roads closed to traffic and left for pedestrians and cyclists. But in some ways, I think, becoming an official slow city is greater than the sum of those parts. It's like a whole city coming together and making a philosophical declaration saying to the world, we here understand that slow is not bad. That slowness has a role to play in the 21st century. And this is immensely important because when all those people come together and say, slow is okay, it gives the rest of us permission to slow down. And why do we need permission? Well, I think that the counter-side of this fast-forward culture is that we've created a deep and abiding taboo against the very idea of slow. That slow has become... A dirty word, it's synonymous with, with bad things, you know, lazy, stupid, torpid, everything that nobody wants to be. And because of that taboo, in our own lives, when, when we, we want to slow down, we can feel in our bones it would be good for us to put on the brakes, we yearn to decelerate, we don't do it. Because of that taboo, because we feel guilty, we feel afraid, we feel ashamed, or we've simply lost the habit. And knowing that other people are slowing down and living better as a result, frees up the rest of us to do the same. Uh, let's talk about exercise. Uh, there's, you know, if you think of slower forms of exercise, like uh, tai chi, yoga, the lattes, not so long ago those were regarded as a bit fringe and flaky and, and maybe a bit feminine. Now they're completely mainstream. And you find even athletes in the most testosterone-drenched sports around, like American football or ice hockey or rugby, doing these Lower forms of exercise. And why do they do them? Well, they do them because they work. And one reason they work is their slowness. You know, they enhance balance and flexibility. But they also work those deeper core muscles that faster forms of exercise tend to skim over. And I think that's a useful metaphor for us today, that fast is very often superficial. It touches the surface and then moves on, whereas slow pauses, goes deep, and gets to the core and the heart of the matter. But something else happens with these slower forms of exercise that goes even deeper. Over time, you begin to cultivate a kind of inner slowness, or internal deceleration, that allows you to return to whatever it is you're doing with a calm, still, slow core. So you think of the athlete returning to the game, or the executive to the office, or the film director to the editing suite, or the parent to the family kitchen, and everything is moving at 100 miles around you. Uh, an hour, and around you, and yet on the inside you remain calm, focused, and, and in control. Slow on the inside while everything's moving fast around you. It's what athletes call being in the zone. Everything moving at super speed, but you don't see it that way. You feel calm and slow on the inside. And what we're talking about there is really bringing the mind and the body back together, that link between mind and body that is systematically obliterated by our go-faster-do-everything-at-once culture and bringing the mind and the body back together is one of the main aims, I think, of this slow culture quake. And when you talk about mind and body, you have to talk about medicine. You know, there's a lot of fast medicine around nowadays. We get sick, we want a pill, it'll make us better tomorrow, and if that doesn't work, or we have side effects, we'll take another pill. And, and we're taking more pills than ever before, spending more money on health than ever before, but in many ways, we seem less well, especially with chronic illnesses, which just do not respond to quick fixes. They need something... More holistic. They need slow fixes. Which is why in the whole world of medicine there's a big drive now to bring slow into the equation. I just want to give you one example of that, which is this, that in blue chip medical schools around the world, they're now putting listening back on the the curriculum. And when you first hear that, you think, I certainly thought, well, that's ridiculous, right? Listening. We all know how to listen. That's like putting eating or breathing on the curriculum, right? It's too silly. But do we really know how to listen? I'm not so sure anymore. I think that in this go faster, distracted, juggle seven things at once culture. We've lost the art of listening. And I mean really listening to another person. When it's our turn to listen, very often we're not listening. We're thinking, oh, what's happening in my inbox or my to-do list? Or we're simply reloading, waiting for our chance to come back and say the next thing we want to say. And of course, <coughs> listening is one of those things that you can, no matter how much of a rupture you're in, you can never accelerate. You can never listen to somebody faster. You? It just doesn't happen that way. Hey. You, you've got to find the rhythm, the tempo, slow down, and connect with that person or in order to listen and, and for that person to be heard. And what happens when doctors listen? Well, something rather extraordinary. <coughs> when a doctor listens to a patient, the patient relaxes. And this is something you hear from patients who've had chronic problems and traveled from doctor to doctor who never really listened. When they finally find a doctor who listens, they say, thank God, he listened, or she listened, I felt heard. And when a patient feels heard and listened to, they relax. And when they relax, the natural healing mechanisms start to kick in. And very often, very often, the patient will get better faster. Which brings us to what I call the delicious paradox of slow. That by slowing down, doing things well, at the right speed, engagement, and fully there, not only do you get better results, but sometimes you get them faster, right? Sometimes you have to slow down in order to speed up, is another way of thinking about it. This mind body business brings us, back to, uh, <coughs> brings us back to sex again, doesn't it? Everything goes back to sex, maybe especially in Amsterdam. And now, I, there's a lot of fast sex around nowadays, right? And I don't just mean the tidal wave of pornography washing over the internet or Tinder hookups. Uh, you remember that woman who was looking at her inbox while having sex with her husband? When I first heard that story, I thought, that, that's, that can't be true, right? That, the journalist must have made that up. That doesn't happen. But yeah, it does happen. In fact, the most recent research suggests that 20% of us now, one in five of the people in this room, now we now interrupt the act of making love to answer the phone or read an email or send a tweet. To think about it. How does that even work? You say, like, you know, time out, darling. I need to tell my followers I'm getting lucky. Did, did we upload a photo? What filter? You're not supposed to be thinking about that in those moments. But even when we do manage to leave our smartphones outside the bedroom, we still seem to want to speed up the act of making love and sex. It's extraordinary. It's like a compulsion. A little while ago, a magazine, a mainstream magazine, arrived in London. You know, mainstream co- magazine for couples and relationships and so on. And, and it mean, had a headline in the front that just stopped me in my tracks. It said, it said, bring her to orgasm in 30 seconds. I was just like, what? Even in the bedroom, you know, if the remarks get set, go. But the funny thing about this technique, and it's a real technique, I, I didn't buy the magazine, but I gather from the headlines for a technique, right? <laughs> is that wherever I mention it, in a public arena, anywhere in the world, the same thing always happens, which is that after I've spoken a few men in the audience come up to me and they say, what was the name of the magazine? And what was the <laughs> sure. But no woman anywhere in the world has ever done that. Now, why? That's probably a su- subject for a whole other keynote. But just in short, I think it's because women have a natural affinity or understanding for the fact that slower is often better in bed. Right? And you remember that great hymn to slow sex from the 70s? I want a lover with a slow hand. I mean, you know that, right? Who, who sang that song? Point of sisters, what's the point of brothers, right? So I think women have always got it and still get it. But <laughs> slower often pays off in the bedroom. But like I said at the beginning, I'm not an extremist or a fundamentalist of, of slowness. I have not come here to tell you that fast sex is always bad. On the contrary, I mean, I I, I like the quickie as much as the next person, right? Um, and to be honest, as a, as a married man, many years, uh, children, all that, I, these days I'll pretty much take any sex I can get, right? Fast or slow. And I don't mean that in a creepy Bill Cosby kind of way. Right? I'm not going around dropping things in people's teeth. I mean, my, my wife. But, but obviously, if all the sex you're having is fast, and every encounter is a quickie, then you really are missing out. Because it's precisely when we slow down. When two people enter into that sacred communion of slowness together, leaving the phones outside, forgetting the clock. That's when not only does the body, and especially the female body, have more time to warm up and deliver you know, more bang for your buck, but also those deeper connections the emotional, psychological, the spiritual, even those things begin to flow. Which is why there's a big drive now uh, to push uh, a slow sex movement around the world. One example is that wherever you, pretty much wherever you go, I don't know about Amsterdam, but certainly in other cities around the world, you find evening courses now, young couples, couples of all ages, flocking to the evening courses uh, to learn how to be a lover with a slow hand. So I've just come back from uh, Mexico City and one of the most popular evening courses there is called Amor Lento, Slow Love. And it's, over, it's overrun, oversubscribed by millennials, the 20-something generation, desperate for somebody to show them how to slow down in bed, right? how to be in love with a slow hand. And in California, Southern California, there's now an institute which is training the first generation of slow sex coaches. Right? Had to be California. But you, you may laugh, but this is a serious program. It's a two-year degree, right? And I shudder to think what the homework assignments look like. But these people are already graduating and they're traveling around the world, and the same thing happens. They came to London recently, and the same thing happens wherever they go, which is they rent a hall for 50 people, and 500 people turn up. because people of all ages are just desperate. they're yearning for someone to show them, give them permission and then show them how to slow down in something as simple as the bedroom and, and, and making love. Let's go from sex to children. Uh, that's often how it works in the, in the real world, isn't <laughs> it? Uh, because we've handed on the virus of hurry to the next generation, haven't we? A lot of children now come out of the womb, and they hit the ground running. So it's baby Einstein DVDs, baby sign language classes, baby ghost pro sports clinics, Mandarin lessons in the Moses basket. And then after that, it's these jam-packed schedules of <coughs> tutoring, and tennis, and, you know, football, and pottery. Until they've got the kind of schedules that will give a CEO heartburn. But increasingly, people are realizing that this doesn't work that this is backfiring on children, parents, families, on all of us. Because children actually need slowness. Uh, They need it maybe even more than grown-ups do, because it's precisely in those moments of unstructured time, Uh, uh, when they have the time the freedom the space to explore the world on their own terms, at their own speed, without adults jumping in and telling them how to explore faster or explore better. Uh, They need to be able to play freely, uh, to, to take reasonable risks. They even need to get bored. Right? You heard the word boredom even in the, in the introduction. And boredom is key in all of this, I think, especially for children, because throughout human history, when a child came to a parent and said, I'm bored, that was the child's problem. Right? You know, your parent anyone here, probably over the age of 30, will remember a parent saying, You're bored? Well, tough. Go outside and play. You know, find somebody to play with. Or, or they'd use that immortal phrase, they'd say, use your imagination. Mm-hmm. Now a child comes to a parent and says, I'm bored, and the parents, it's the parents' fault. Suddenly the parent says, Oh no, my child is bored, I'm failing. Maybe we need another extracurricular activity. Where's the iPad? Instead of just backing off, slowing down, and letting boredom happen. Because it's in those moments of boredom, or of unstructured time, or things just happening when you forget the tests, the targets, and the timetables. that children learn how to, how to think, how to create, how to innovate, how to use their imagination. It's when they learn how to enjoy the moment and how to get along with each other. And it's also, maybe most important of all, where they learn how to look in to themselves and work out who they are rather than what everybody else expects them to be. Which is why there's a big drive now to bring slow into parenting and education. A couple of examples. Uh, Across North America now, there are whole towns, whole towns that hold regular official slow days when all homework, all extracurricular activities, everything in that town is cancelled for the day, and children are just given one day to hang out, daydream, get bored, get into trouble, be children, right? And a lot of families find that it's such a relief to have just one day, you know, just one day when they're not charging through red lights to get from tennis to tutoring on time or wolfing down dinner in the car between badminton and sketching, that they start to cut their schedules the rest of the year. The same message is coming now from the big elite schools around the world. I'm guessing that you'll have heard of the school Eaton, um, It's a famous thousand-year-old private school in England. It's produced 19 British prime ministers so far, including the last one, uh, David Cameron, who got us into so much trouble with Brexit. That's a subject for another another keynote. Uh, So Eton is the the nucleus ultra of private schools. It's the machine for turning out the male English elite. And a little while ago, I got a phone call from one of the uh, housemasters at Eton, and he said to me, he said, uh, Carl, we need to join forces and launch a slow education movement. And I thought, well, first of all, I thought this can't be right. It must be a friend doing a prank call. But, but no, it turned out, sure enough, to be somebody from Eton. And I said, well, I'm amazed that you're on the phone saying this to me. Because, because you're Eton. Right? You know, you're the shining city on the hill. You're the, you're the reason the rest of us are running around so fast to catch up. You're the gold standard. And you know what he said to me? He said, well, if we're the gold standard, the gold standard is wrong. Because today's Etonians are not right they're moving way too fast. They're not learning as well as they did in in, in the past. They're not learning to think and create and innovate. They're unhappy, they're unwell physically. They're racing through their childhood instead of living it. And we as Ethan need to send the message that what children need now to thrive in the early 21st century is not to go faster and faster, not to be busier and busier, not to be more and more wired up to the internet. What they need is to slow down, And we as Eton need to send that message echoing not only through the hallowed halls of of our own school, but we need to send it through schools across this country and across the world. That same message is also coming from the elite universities. A little while ago, Harvard sent out a letter to all first-year students, and it said, welcome to Harvard. We want you to reach for the stars and be the very best that you can be. But in order to do that, you need to avoid getting overscheduled. We know that you've come from childhoods where every moment of your day you were on the clock, doing, 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 productive, 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 building luminous CVs and resumes. But that was crazy. Now that you've got a bit of freedom and you're away from your parents, it's time to put on the brakes. It's time to leave empty space in your calendar, in your planner, for drifting around campus, for having conversations with people you would not normally speak to, for stumbling across a dusty tome in a corner of the library. Time to get bored, even. The word boredom is in that letter. Or just to sit under an apple tree like Isaac Newton did. And the title of that letter, you know, from Harvard University, Harvard, the Mount Olympus of academic achievement, Harvard, the pot of gold at the end of so many parenting rainbows, the title of that letter was simply, you can probably guess what it was now, People slow the hell down. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, you may be hearing a little voice, and I, because uh, everybody hears this voice, which is okay, slow with children, sex, food, cities, Edson, exercise. I can see how it all works there, but the workplace, forget it, right? You can't slow down at work today, or you're toast. A one word answer, which is is wrong. Now, obviously, in the modern workplace, you have to be fast much of the time, maybe even most of the time, depending on your. Your work, but if you're fast all of the time, then you're you're heading for trouble because not only are you going to burn yourself out in the medium and long term, but also in the short term, you won't be able to think as accurately, as creatively, or as smartly if you only have one speed and that speed is turbo, which is why there is a big slow work revolution rumbling through workplaces around the world. Uh, I. As I said, I haven't got a lot of time, and, and there's a lot to say about the workplace. I'm just going to mention two examples of how this comes into practice. Um, although before I do that, I, I, because we're in, in Holland, I thought I'd mention the third one, which is um, moving away from the idea that working longer hours is always better, this kind of dreadful notion that what we call in English FaceTime. You know, you're know, you in the office, your brain brain's somewhere else, but your face is there. So you put in the hours, and somehow you're a better employee. Increasingly that idea is coming under review and people are smashing it on the head and get, finding ways to send staff home early. Uh, even in the workaholic United States, they're capping working hours on Wall Street for younger bankers, moving to four day weeks, sounding alarms so that people go home when they're done um, instead, of, instead of just staying there endlessly. And the reason I'm bringing this up now and thinking of it in terms of Holland is that there was a, on the BBC website a little while ago, it was an example from a Dutch company, a design firm, which installed special desks. I don't know if you've seen this video. It's At 6 o'clock every day, the desks are attached to a cable on the ceiling, and the desks just go up the ceiling, right? <laughs> I don't have the video here, but the computers, and everything goes up the ceiling, and people think, oh, at 6 o'clock, there's nothing else I can do, so they go home, right? And of course, what, what always happens when companies begin to say less is more when it comes to the workplace, that get away from the workplace, go home, slow down, uh, down tools, and come back a better version of yourself the next day, the same thing always happens that productivity does not go down, it goes up. People find that they get more done in less time, and the work they get done is better, more accurate, and more valuable. So the two sort of principles of slow work, leaving aside the one I've just mentioned uh, that I want to walk through today, are the first is of taking breaks. It's, it's one thing to you know, have more time off work and slow down and chill out away from the workplace. That's kind of easy to do, because you're on your own, it's easier. It's harder to slow down at work Because you may be sitting at your desk at your computer and every cell of your body is saying, I need to rest, right? I need to get up and go away and just sit on a bench or go for a walk, but you get up and it can take just a little eyebrow from a colleague or a snide remark about how you're always taking a break and next thing you do, you're sitting back down again, right? We get infected by other people's expectations and by their, their hurry, the virus of hurry that moves around offices. But it's crucial, it's essential to have those moments of slow, to change gears, to slow down during the workday. Why? Well, not only because it recharges the physical batteries and gives you that kind of physical push in the body, but it also energizes our minds. We know now from the latest research that when people are in a relaxed, unhurried, mellow, slow state, that the brain shifts into a richer, deeper, more nuanced, more creative mode of thought that psychiatrists, psychologists actually call slow thinking. And we all know that. I mean, you know that from your own experience, I'm sure. If you just think for a moment, let me ask you a question. When do your best ideas come to you? In the shower. Yeah, in the shower. I mean, in the shower, actually, is the number one answer you get around the world. No one ever shouts out, my best ideas come to me when I'm juggling 19 emails or trying to meet a deadline with the boss or a client breathing down my neck. It doesn't work that way. It's when you slow down that the creative juices start to flow and those breakthrough blue sky ideas bubble up to the surface. And the idea, those, that's when the ideas that can change the world start to come forward, which is why you're finding more and more companies looking for ways to carve out moments and spaces for their staff to slow down during the workday. So they're creating more and more commonly quiet uh, rooms where people can go listen to whale music or just do nothing, or get a massage or do yoga. I mean, really yoga, not speed yoga, obviously. Uh, or have a siesta, right? I mean, the siesta is making a comeback now in the modern workplace. And I don't mean the traditional Spanish siesta of a bottle of Rioja in two hours. <coughs> however wonderful that may be, that's probably best kept for your still vacation. I mean a, a more modern, leaner, meaner siesta, you know, a bottle of water, followed by 20 to 26 ish minutes, as recommended by NASA in the United States, to return in the afternoon, refreshed, recharged, and able to work much more efficiently and productively. And of course, one of the activities you find most commonly in these new quiet rooms is meditation, or mindfulness, which has just been, and is roaring, uh, not very slowly, as be said, very fast, through the corporate world. And it's not surprising, because we, it's clear now, we know now, the science is telling us very plainly, that meditation, mindfulness, it works, right? It, 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 we know that it reduces stress, it enhances feelings of calm, it allows you to get that kind of inner slow I was talking about earlier from slower forms of exercise. It can sharpen your concentration, boost happiness. But meditation and mindfulness can do something over the longer term, even deeper. The people who meditate over a period of time begin to rewire their brains. They right? increase the level of what's called gyrification. And that means that they have more folds in the cerebral cortex. And guess what you can do if you have more folds in your cerebral cortex, more density? You can process information faster. Faster. Which brings us back to this delicious paradox of slow, that those who slow down with meditation or mindfulness are better able to cope and process all that, cope with, process with all that fast data and stuff in the modern workplace than those who never slow down at all. Or again, like I said earlier, in order to thrive in a fast world or speed up, sometimes you need to slow down. You need to learn or relearn the lost art of slow. Here are some companies that are playing around with meditation programs what you'll notice here is that these are not aromatherapy cooperatives and they're not yoga retreats, right? These are the big boys who are slugging it out in some of the most cutthroat, most fast-moving sectors of the global economy. And what are they saying to their staff? They're saying, they're saying what Harvard's saying, they're saying what Eaton's saying, they're saying what everybody who's sensible is saying. They're saying slow <coughs> down. In fact, they're turning that old adage on its head. You know that saying, don't just sit there, do something? They're saying, don't just do something, sit there. And they're not doing it because it gives people a warm, fuzzy feeling, either. They're doing it because it goose[s] and boosts the bottom line and makes the companies more efficient and more, more productive. Uh, the other way of thinking about slow in the workplace has to do with um, uh, technology, unplugging. Now, I, I'm not a Luddite. I love technology. I have <laughs> all the gadgets. And, and In fact, I even feel tempted to get an iPhone 7, even though I don't need one. Uh, they're great. We, we all know that. But they all have a little button somewhere, that, usually red or orange, that, that says or means off and when we don't use the off button, the gadgets start to backfire on us. And this is, you know, this is something that we all know. We know that if you don't switch off your technology, we've already seen how with that woman looking at her inbox, that it, these, the technology can start to penetrate and pollute even the most intimate moments of our lives, ruining them with distraction. But actually also being on all the time makes us less intelligent, less efficient, less able to think. what that means, for starters, is tackling and taking down the myth of multitasking. Now, I know there are a lot of women in the rooms, but I'm just going to come out and say it, the human brain, even the female brain, cannot multitask. You may think you're multitasking, but what you're actually doing when you're multitasking is you're juggling. You're toggling back and forth between activities. So five seconds of activity one, and then your attention pull back. Ten seconds here, and guess what? That turns out to be just as inefficient and sloppy as it sounds. People who multitask versus people who slow down, focus, do one thing at a time. If you line them up side by side, the multitaskers will take up to two times as long and make two times as many mistakes as the supposedly slow people. Unitasking, monotasking is the way forward in a world that's constantly telling us that we should be multitasking. The, the same. The, a similar message is coming from other high-tech uh, firms. Hewlett-Packard put out a report a little while ago, warning that the constant barrage of electronic interruptions causes our IQ to fall ten points, and ten points is a lot. Ten points is double the effect of smoking marijuana. So we've swallowed this idea that seems so wonderfully modern and so achingly 21st century that to be always on, to be the person who gets back to every email in 30 seconds and picks up every phone call on the first ring is going to turn us into an uber-productive master of the universe, when in fact, what it actually does is it it turns you into Cheech and Chong, or Charlie Sheen, or somebody like this. None of which is that useful in most modern workplaces, which is why more and more companies are looking for ways to put speed limits on the information superhighway. Here's some examples of companies that are doing just that. Uh, The one that jumps out for me is, is Volkswagen. A little while ago, they tweaked their BlackBerry servers, So the staff, most staff, could no longer send or receive emails outside working hours. And when you first hear that, you think, wow, that sounds like a suicide note, right, from a big international company, a global supply chain. How can they shut things down for 14 hours? How can they down tools for for two-thirds of the the 24-hour cycle? Well, it turns out they can, because Volkswagen did what very few companies or organizations or very few of us ever do, which was that they pushed pause and they said, who really needs to be contactable outside the office. Who really, really needs to be reachable? And they discovered that most of the emails that were following home, most of their employees, were not that important. You know, they were urgent because email, just by its very nature, oozes urgency. It just gives this feeling of urgency. Email comes, you have to read it, right? There's that little red thing, you've got to read it, then you have to answer. But they weren't that important, the emails. Many of them could have waited till the next day, or if the person who had sent them had been forced to think about whether they needed to send them, many of them would not have been sent in the first place. So they found that it, it's worked so well for Volkswagen that many other companies like Puma, BMW, uh, the, the German Ministry of the Interior as well, um, have also taken on similar programs. So just take, saying to people, it's okay to switch off. You know, It's fine to switch off. It's okay to put speed limits on the information superhighway. You may be thinking, okay, I get that technology thing. Maybe even in some of your companies, s- similar things are happening. Uh, but that, it's still a difficult nut to crack. It's still a difficult thing to get your head around that slow could be a useful tool in the workplace. And maybe you're thinking, I'd like to hear it from a higher authority right, than me standing here on the stage. And, and the good news is that the higher authority has spoken. Right? Uh, a little while ago, The Economist magazine did a, a big survey looking at the pace and speed of modern business. And they crunched the numbers and looked at the data and spoke to everybody. And they came to a very clear conclusion And the conclusion was this, that yes, some things have sped up at work, mainly information technology, and that we need to speed up with them. But the other side of their conclusion was very different. Their conclusion was, (coughs) many things have not sped up or should not speed up. And we are human beings. The machines have got faster, but as human beings, we're just the same. We have the same needs, the same rhythms, the same tempos as we've always had. We need slowness, we need to slow down in the workplace. And so the economists came to a very fine point Conclusion, a paragraph at the end, which sums up perfectly the slow philosophy in general. It's forget frantic acceleration, mastering the clock of business means knowing when to be faster, when to be slow. And that, they're talking about business there, but that could apply to anything. You could say mastering the clock of education, of raising children, of design, of making films, of sex, of anything is about that dance, the magic and the music that comes when you dance back and forth between fast and slow and do things at the right speed. And that's The Economist magazine, right? It's not Buddhist Monthly or Acupuncture Weekly, right? It's the in-house bible of CEOs, entrepreneurs, and go-getting uh, business people around the world saying the same thing I've been saying to you since I got up here, which is that slow is not a bad thing. Slow has a role to play. And if you can master that dance between fast and slow, then you're going to be the best version of yourself in whatever you're doing from the workplace right the way through to home. So what does all of this mean? in in terms of cinema and documentary making. Well, I I think, you know, coming back to the workplace, I think it's important that there's nothing wrong with being more productive and efficient and so on, but that's not enough. That's not the end point for slowing down because I think we need to go to the end with this slowness and go past just being healthier, happier, and more productive because if you do go to the end with slow, what you find is that people can have the space and the time to ask the really big questions. When you really slow down, really slow down, you start to confront the big questions such as who am I, what is my purpose here, what kind of world do I want to create and leave behind for my children and my grandchildren, and all those questions that we forget when we're just juggling 15 things trying to get through to the next thing on our to-do list. And it seems to me that uh, that's in a way the link between all of these uh, uh, things I've been talking to you about, and the slow movement in general, and this Quiet Eye Festival is that what these films do, these nine films that are going to be screened over the next few days, is that one of the things they do is they do invite you, not only to slow down, but to go all the way with slow, to start confronting some of those those big questions. And I've I, I mean, I, you've heard um, a, a, an introduction to slow documentary. I'm just going to talk you through how I see it. Uh, it the, the, these films, and, and slow documentary films in general, the, the pace is slow. I mean, that's just what you sign up for, right? And you're not... It's the opposite of a Paul Greengrass, Jason Bourne film. Right? It's not rapid cut, it's the op- everything is real time. It's time as it's experienced in real life. And there's also minimal narrative. You're often left kind of floating around, a little bit unsure what's happening, uh, and you heard the word boredom as well, you might feel little moments of boredom as well. But none of that is bad, because that's part of the experience, it's part of real life. And actually, if you allow the boredom to happen, if you allow that feeling of not being sure what's happening, uh, then your, your own brain switches on, and your own creative juices start flowing. And you're able, for instance, not only to pause, to observe the details, to savor and feel deeply what's going on and reflect, but you're also able to weave your own stories and come up with your own interpretations of what these films are. And my, my sense of some of these films is that people will come away with very different feelings uh, about them, because there's so much space for you to bring your own vision uh, to the table. And what you find in many of the films that it, it, I, I discovered, and I've seen this before, but I see it very vividly in these films, is that nature is very often uh, a key element in them. And that's not surprising, because nature uh, simply doesn't do fast. Nature is never in a hurry. Nature does everything by nature. Nature does everything at the right speed. There's no other way for it. And if we start to speed nature up, try to make it go too fast for its own good, well, then we start having problems, as you can see, with all the environmental dislocation. So what you... I'm just going to... I know we've already gone through the films, I just want to say a couple of things about each just briefly. Uh, these, these two here, the uh, Tamagura, uh, Grandma, and Alexei, the spring, uh, both of them essentially have a kind of link, which is a spring, a water spring. Uh, the, the, the old couple who make the miso, and it takes three years to make, and so I'm mean, a perfect example of slow food, they rely on a spring that never freezes at the bottom of a mountain. In the second film, uh, the, the people who stayed in this village which was near Chernobyl when everybody else fled and carried on living as though they were in a kind of 19th or 18th, 17th century peasant village, uh, they were able to do that because the spring, while everything else got vaguely contaminated or was contamination in the air, the spring remained 100% clean. So it's that kind of sort of link between the films there and that feeling of, of nature. You see nature very clearly also in Two Years at Sea and, and Light Year, the first a portrait of a man living very quietly, alone in, in the highlands of Scotland. And then a portrait of the garden. And the, the, the garden is interesting because, again, there's no uh, narrative. It's very, it's very quiet. And it seems the garden seems very peaceful. Things move very slowly. But at the same time, there's change going on. And it's alive. And for me, it, I felt that dance between the fast and the slow very much in that film. Uh, you see the other side of nature uh, in, in, in this, this uh, film where Swiss shepherds you know, uh, doing their through the mountains and and, and really encountering hardship and and, and difficultness and and, and pain and so on. And I think that's something to remember as well that we can sometimes, especially if we live in cities, romanticize nature and that nature with its slowness can also do harm in some ways or can also test us. It's not just like a holiday resort um, the the slow that nature delivers. Uh, In south to north you also find that nature can strike back uh, and that, that, that huge Chinese project to divert Billions of gallons of water, of river across the land is causing all kinds of upheaval and dislocation. And it's shown very vividly and, and in, in a weird way, kind of beautifully, in this film. Uh, but not, not all the films are about nature. Uh, invention, which th- we're going to see, or some of you I'm sure will stick around and see, this the film that's being screened tonight, uh, Does looks at three cities. Paris, Sao Paulo, and Toronto. Three cities that I know very well, actually, as it happens. And what I found delicious and exhilarating about this film was the fact that these are cities that I know, but because it was fil- it's, they're filmed so languidly, so slowly, so meticulously, and so lovingly, that somehow I felt like I was rediscovering these cities in a new light and seeing them from a new angle. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that slow, uh, the slow eye, slow documentary does, it can take things that are very familiar to us, or we think they're familiar, and just allow us to rotate our vision a little bit because we change the pace and the speed and see that familiar thing in a completely fresh and new light. And one of the scenes that really stuck with me from Invention was that in uh, Sao Paulo, there's a, there's a scene where uh, they closed off a main road, which is very like the Slow Cities movement. And people come out into a road which is normally just packed with cars hurtling along. And they're just walking around, meeting each other, uh, scootering on bikes, eating. And it just seems like it's like a broidal, you know, It's just this kind of medieval village feeling, of people coming together very slowly, very organically. And it's, it's deeply, um, deeply moving and touching. Um, the dead, slow head one also has that kind of the the, the people on the boat, which uh, Martin described as being a bit like a monster. It's weirdly kind of hypnotic, this feeling of these people stuck in the ship. Uh, and it's got a kind of terrible, terrible beauty to it. It's sort of monstrous but fascinating at the same time. And then the last one, uh, which is called A Place Called Loy. This one, in some ways, is the closest to my heart because I lived for for years in South America. I was a journalist there. And I covered the pond. And I, and I flew this airline. So this is a, a, this story of... An airline, Lloyd Airlines, which closed down, went bankrupt. But all the staff kept on going to work, dressing up, polished buttons, and everything. As you know, um, tumbleweed and weeds popped up through the, the runways and around the place. It kept going and kept going, and so on. And there's this, it's terribly poignant and moving, and so on. And I have flown myself that airline, so it was uh, it was quite a storiy thing to see uh, again. So I, I would urge you all to see as many of these films as you can. Uh, Nine is a lot, but you know, get out there and, and see the ones you, you can, because I think that they will kind of help you get that sense of recalibrating your own metronome and your own vision of the world, and allow you maybe to go away with some of that uh, good slow that we're all aspiring to get. But I suppose the final question before us is, is this, um, is it possible to slow down in general in our lives, right? So you know, you've heard me talking about all these people doing it, we've now heard about nine films that are gonna help bring us closer to slowness? Is it possible, after you've seen these films, or even just one of them, to go home and start slowing down? And the answer that I give you with a uh, you know, hand on heart is a, is a resounding yes. And, and in a way, I'm a bit like Exhibit A, a rehabilitated speedaholic. I, as I said earlier, I still love speed. I, you know, I, I'm, I love fast, I love it in the sports, I like it in the workplace sometimes. I, I like London, I just love the, 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 the buzz of a fast city. But I've also learned to love and feel comfortable with slowness and other speeds and so on. I've reconnected with my inner tortoise, if you like. And we all have one in there. And by doing that, this has completely changed my life. I'm happier because I'm not rushing. I'm living my life instead of racing through it. I have more energy. I'm not tired from going fast all the time. I live that delicious paradox of slow in the workplace every day. I get more done now in much less time because I'm not trying to go fast all the time. You know, I pick my moments for fast, my moments for slow, and over the course of a year I end up working a lot less, but working better. But I think for me the most important gain or triumph that's come from slowing down is that my relationships feel stronger with other people. You know, I, I now listen, I don't try and listen faster, I actually listen to people. And when I am with people, I'm with them. I'm not wondering if that's my phone vibrating or what do I need to do next. I, I'm there in, in, in body and soul. I'm there 100%. And... In fact, the, for me, the, the litmus test of slowing down is, was always going to be bedtime stories, because that's where the whole adventure started for me. And there, too, the news is good. Uh, I, have, I have to admit, I'll say it again, when I first started reading bedtime stories, I hated it. I, I, I just hated it. It was so slow. I used to dread it at the end of the day, thinking, oh, no, I've got to go up there and read The Cat in the Hat again, very slowly. And I just wanted to put a bullet through my head. But now... That's completely changed. You know, s- s- stories went from being a punishment to being really my reward at the end of the day. The, the moment when I could go into my son's bedroom, I have a daughter as well, so both their bedrooms, and you know, I don't wear a watch anymore. Switch off, no phone. Switch off the email. I can't hear it pinging next door. Sit on the bed with both feet up, and read. No more multiple page turn technique. Read every word. And I tell you, Snow White is a lot better with seven dwarfs than it is with three. <laughs> and, and and enjoy it, you know. and, and I find that with my children. Because we're together and I'm not in a rush, not only do we enjoy the stories more, but we start having conversations that we never had before. So you know we'll be reading, but then we'll stop and we'll cuddle, or have a joke, or they'll start to tell me about some bad thing that happened in the playground at school, or a worry they have about uh, you know a teacher they don't like, or some you know the things that never came out when I was trying in my head to calculate can I skip two pages now or three, and and now it's become something that we you look forward to and, and, and enjoy. And in fact, I have a Hollywood ending for everything um, that goes a bit like this. When my first book, which is right there, uh, was and it's there in Dutch, uh, was coming out, I, I was getting ready to do a book tour of the United States, and so the bags were packed, the door was open, and I was waiting for a taxi to take me to Heathrow. And my, you know, my son appeared, came down the stairs, and he was carrying a card that he'd made for me. And he'd taken two index cards and stapled them together, and on the front of the sticker, he, in front of the card, he placed a sticker of Tintin, and everybody knows who Tintin is. Right here, I not need to explain this part. So there's a sticker of Tintin on the front, and I recognize the sticker because we're huge Tintin fans in our family. I grew up reading Tintin with my parents, read my children. Lo- we love Tintin. But th- the sticker, I recognized it because a friend of my son had brought it from the Tintin store in Brussels, and when, when the sticker had arrived in our home, my son had said, "Oh, the sticker's way too special to be used," and he'd hidden it in a corner of his room somewhere. So I, I was surprised to see it on the front of this card. So I opened up the card, and inside all he'd written was, Dear Daddy, Love, Benjamin. And I said, I said wow, what, a, what an amazing card, and what an honor. You know, a tinted sticker, I know, you know, thank you very much. Is this a card to wish me good luck in America? And he said, no. He said, this is a, a card for the best story reader in the world. And I thought, yeah, I made it sound like that. I thought, wow. I thought, wow, this, um, wow, this slowing down really, really works. But I s- slightly spoiled the moment with my next thought. I didn't, thankfully, did not say this out loud, but I thought it inside my head. I thought, I thought, Benjamin, why didn't you hurry up and say this six months ago? I could have finished my book with this beautiful anecdote. But that is so unslow, <laughs> that is the opposite of slow. So let's just push that to thought to the side and go back to my first thought, which is, wow, this slowing down really, really does work. Thank you very much.